The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. Oops, oops, oops. <laughs> you are listening to the Burroughs of Berea. Well, welcome back to the Burroughs of Berea. I am Rick Welch, and to my left is Billy I. Candy Kimsey. Like a big hunk bar. Should I say more? <laughs> is that a thing? That's an that's an old candy bar. A hunk bar? He's bigger than the annals yeah. of time. Yeah. I would say that correctly next time. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. It's, 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 yeah, it's a big hunk, and it's yeah. just full of nuts. You just heard I him. I thought that was a big chunk bar. Wasn't it with the silver wrapping? Well, yeah, that one is, but there's also a big hunk bar. Never need seen it. Need I say it's more? Nougat, yeah, nougat yeah. and peanuts. Yeah. Well, honey, honey sweetened. Oh, it's really? my favorite. Honey Straight sweet. out of Compton. I get them all the time. <laughs> Ralph Hicks. <laughs> Represent. Behind the glass, Rocket Man, Andy Bishop. I've got a new nickname for Sarita. Oh, gosh. Oh, dear. She doesn't know if this is going to be better oh, it's, or worse. It's, if it's worse, you can get mad the, at me. The devil you know. Sarita, the edge. Edgerton. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I'm living on the edge, baby. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Lord. Cherry the Annihilator <laughs> Lewis. Hello. Sarita, have you ever seen the movie The Edge? No, but my husband's nickname in college was Edge. Oh, well, so you'll take it, huh? I'll take it. It's always on the edge. But in the movie, it was a terrifying grizzly bear. <laughs> <laughs> Also, also, also appropriate. Also, yes. mo- also appropriate. Yeah, mama bear. Yes. Yeah, mama yeah. bear. Oh, yeah. Don't mess with my babies. <laughs> well, today we have an incredibly special guest. Um, as I always say, I'm fangirling a little bit. I apologize in advance. But uh, uh, today we have Dr. Don K. Preston in the studio. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's quite yeah. an honor to be with you. It, I, he doesn't know much about the show, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll retract that until the end of the show, Jenny, and then I'll tell you what I think. Did catch the introductions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Enough said there, Mr. Preston. So I want to give our audience just a little bit of a background. We're going to get into his testimony, but it says here that Dom is a 1975 graduate of Northside School of Preaching, mm-hmm. uh, Seminary Harrison, Arkansas. He's been a public. He's been in public speaking since the age of thirteen, and was voted among the JC's outstanding young men of America in 1980. Don's preaching ministry spanned nearly four decades into two different cities: Shawnee and Ardmore, Oklahoma. And Don worked for seven years helping to produce a television program for a Christian magazine, which received national recognition in the magazine Christianity Today. In June 2010, Don received an honorary doctorate degree from Vision International University of Ramona, California, and recognition of his outstanding accomplishments in ministry and publishing. And I will say amen to that. Um, it means a lot to me that you came all the way out here from Oklahoma. So thank you for being in the studio with us. And uh, one of the things that I always ask every guest, the very first question I always ask is, can you remember your earliest memory of when you heard the name Jesus Christ? 
I heard the name of Jesus Christ when I was two or three years old. Well, yeah. <laughs> Not that I necessarily remember that, but my father was a minister, a uh, very, very devout Bible student, very devout uh, Christian. And um, my father started in teaching me how to memorize scripture when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, which you, you understand that for any five-year-old, memorizing scripture is right at the top of priority list, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go out and catch bugs and slugs and snakes. And, and it's like, no, uh, tomorrow you're going memor- to quote this verse for me. And I was like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but my father, there was never a day in, in the entirety of my life that I can remember my dad not having the Bible in hand mm-hmm. wow. at the end of the day. Wow. And he tried to instill that love of the Lord and his word in me, and he succeeded in that. Yes, absolutely. And so so he was a minister. Yes. And so you were raised in church then. Absolutely. Now, what about your own personal salvation? I, um, I, I was obviously instructed and taught about Christ. And th- the unfortunate part of it, and my dad was a little bit of an iconoclast when it comes to the, the normal fellowship in which I was raised. Mm-hmm. My dad actually believed in grace, and most of the fellowship in which I was raised, to be honest, didn't. Okay. Uh, they talk about grace, but they don't apply grace. Uh, grace applies unless you sin. Ah, so I'm (laughs) curious what it's applying to, but okay. Did you lose your salvation? Yes, very much so. Oh, wow. Uh, As a matter of fact, that was was the catalyst because I lived in fear constantly. I was was 13 years old. I was was not being a good boy. Let me put it, that'll suffice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, when you think— Well, you were catching slugs and frogs, right? That's right, but— yeah, but the, some of the things that I was doing wouldn't qualify as sin, to be honest about it. But I had a, I had a really, really ba- sensitive conscience, and I thought they were sin. Hmm. And okay, here, here's where this really starts, right? Okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> now, believe me, I love the Lord, I really did. But I had as much fear of the Lord as I had love. And I, our house sat at the apex of a really, really long sweeping curve. And my bedroom was on the west side of the house next to the curve. And I had red curtains. And about midnight, as I was laying there struggling with my conscience over these horrific sins I had committed, a car comes from the west around the curve, lights up my bedroom in bright red. Yeah. And this is it. (laughs) The Lord has come, and I am doomed. (laughs) Next morning, I walked right down the aisle, and I was baptized. (laughs) Oh, wow. There you go. And it was, I mean, as I said, make no mistake, I love the Lord. Sure. But I also had that tremendous fear factor in my life of the Lord coming at any moment and me not being ready. Mm -hmm. And so— that was really the beginning of my walk, and thank the good Lord, literally, like I said, my father believed in grace. He very often got in trouble at the different congregations that he would preach at uh, because he would teach grace. Right. And they some, so often they were not ready to hear that. Uh, it makes for a good platitude coming from a pulpit, but if you have people involved in sin and they need nurturing and loving and grace— then that's a totally different matter. Sure. Uh, Got to get rid of them, you know, uh, push them out the door, whatever. And, and so I had, I had a nurturing 
in in the home environment, as far as my dad was concerned, who taught me about grace that I didn't get from the other people in my circles. Sure. And for that, I'm extremely thankful. And I've probably gone beyond that, uh, even from him. Yes. But I think he would appreciate that. Yeah. And so, so you were saved at the age of 13. Yes. And so from there, growing up in your household and you're, you're in the church, uh, can you take us to the point to where you began ministry, becoming a minister of your own, on your own? I had no intentions whatsoever be, of becoming a minister. Sounds like it, what every other minister tells us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, just, the ones, and the ones that wanted to become ministers decided it was not for them. Yeah. And probably a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I was in seminary, there were 26 guys, uh, no, 13 guys in my graduating class. And uh, I, to this present day, am the only one that graduated and is still in the ministry. Hmm. Only one. And some people say I shouldn't be, but that's another issue. So the point of it is that my father taught me that love he, he taught me to memorize scripture, and my father also taught me how to think analytically, logically, and he would, he would come to me. I, I have lots and lots of memories of this, and I'm talking six, seven years old. Uh, he would come to me, and he said, Don, uh, I'm going to make a statement. You tell, him, tell me if it's true or not. Now, again, I mean, as a, you know, as a little kid that would a whole lot rather be out doing anything, catching Polywogs, tadpoles. I was just, what? And he he would give me an argument from someone. Oh, super somewhere. fun, Dad. Logic puzzles. Thanks. <laughs> that's exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And he would say, tell me if that's true or false. Well, probably three quarters of the time, I, w- I was multiple choice, true or false. <laughs> okay, it's false. Okay, why is it false? Hmm. Well, I don't know. Wow. Well, Here's some verses to read between now and tomorrow. You read those verses and then compare it with what I've just asked you, and then you tell me if it's true or false. That's just like homework from school. Critical thinking. He's teaching you critical thinking. He was teaching me critical thinking. And I've never had formal training in logic, but I have many friends who were who tell me, that I operate on a high level of critical, logical thinking. Mm-hmm. And I take that as a tremendous compliment to my dad. Sure. Really, it's, it's a compliment to my dad. And so, as I said, I had no intentions of becoming a minister. My dad desperately wanted me to be, and he wasn't the one that pushed me. He always let me know that he wanted me to be a minister. But my mom, when I, it, this began in the ninth grade. Or no, actually, it started in the seventh grade. She she would come to me on Monday and say, "By the way, Don, you're speaking at Wesley, Arkansas this weekend. What am I talking on? Oh, I'll let you know." <laughs> on Wednesday, she would present to me a fully typed out manuscript of the sermon that I was going to give. Oh. So she did let you know. Now, see, oh, yeah. She let me know. <laughs> Mind you, I had no input <laughs> in choosing the subject whatsoever. On Wednesday, this fully typed out manuscript was handed to me, memorize it, and preach it on Sunday. Wow. 
Now, you talk about memorization challenges. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because they're... There were a couple of different times I'd be up speaking, and a lot of these were really, really small country churches that didn't have air conditioning. Mm. And a gust of wind come across, and there goes my sermon laying all over the floor. (laughs) And I'm scrambling around madly, wildly, trying to gather up my notes. Uh, But I'm not going to say I did well, but I I quoted very well. Let let me just say that. And that continued all the way through my high school days. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time I was a senior, my mother had had me speaking at some country congregation in Northwest Arkansas every single weekend, whether I wanted to or not. I had no choice. They're, they're, they're going to be counting on you. <sighs> now, I'm curious. So, your mother was typing these up. Yes. Now, in your specific church that you're in, do they allow women to preach? No. But she is. She was very much the preacher behind the How man. about that? For years, your mom was the <laughs> For preacher. years, literally. Yeah, but at the same time, educating her son on how to present and work a sermon. And Certainly. How about that? Certainly. That's fascinating. She was one of those godly women, you know, that Proverbs 31 talks about. Yeah. That uh, she had a vision for her son. And that vision sprang from daddy that never pushed me at all, not he never pushed me anything like mom did. And because like I said, when mom approached me on Monday, it was not, do you want to do this? It's like, you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just crazy to think of a high school kid on Saturday night, what they usually do, and then preaching on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, well, you, know, you wow. remember what I said about when I start uh, teaching exactly, some things? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah wow. let's not go into detail yeah, on that, no. but <laughs> <laughs> that, that will suffice. Wow. Uh, I, I think it's interesting because it sounds like it sounds like uh, Tiger Woods' early life, except, you know, for preaching, where it's yeah. just like, here's, here's what you're going to learn, <laughs> yeah, and you're yeah. going to be good at it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, it, it kind of went from there, and and really a turning point. Uh, my dad had established uh, an egg wholesale business mm-hmm. when I was uh, a junior in high school. He built it up. My dad was one of those people that could sell ice to an Eskimo any day of the week, mm-hmm. and he trained me in sales and, as well, and um, all the time still encouraging me. You know, Don, if you'd like to go to college to become a minister, I'll support you. Eh, I don't want to do that. I want to get a job. I want to make money. And um, so at by the time I was a senior, we, we moved to a little place called Wetumpka, Oklahoma, which is that big. And it's depressed and depressing. Yeah. So he's he's showing you about two inches wide. <laughs> it's yeah, really small. Yeah, it's it's small. really small. Uh, when when my father told the city fathers that we were thinking about moving there, they just you, you name the building and you could have it. <laughs> well, because we were going to employ like ten people, and they were like. Wow, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's a quarter of the population. That's a quarter of the population. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so we move in there. And my mom didn't have the connections with the little small congregations for me to preach, but she made some. So here I am. And the only good thing about Wetumpka, Oklahoma, is where I found my wife. And that was almost 53 years ago. Uh, 
I won't go into that story. That would take a, a lot of time, except just simply to say that the very first time she saw me, she didn't like me. She thought I, uh, I was a smart aleck kid. <laughs> she was absolutely correct, mind you, but she initially said, ain't no way in this world I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date that guy. Yeah. Just like you didn't want to be a minister. Just like I did not want to be a minister. I, I do have to say this. The only reason I ever asked her out on a date in the first place was because my best friend at the time bet me that she would not go out with me. How about that? Who wants to lose a bet? Nobody. <laughs> but. I won the bet that that shows you the evils of gambling. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know she will be listening to this show. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad she's not here, by the way. Down here in the South, what we say is that you you flung a hankering on her that she couldn't get rid of. That's right. <laughs> but, I've never heard that. Now, oh, neither well, have I. You guys. And now I can't unhear it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, uh, but I still she think has, you outkicked uh, your coverage. She has been my best friend. Uh, my sidekick, uh, I don't know what in the world I, I noticed in our email correspondence that after I first you know, introduced mm-hmm. myself to you, it was only two emails later, and then your wife took over, and yes. then everything got incredibly organized. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no question about that. She's our financial advisor, planner, schemer. You know? yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, I was the salesman, the top salesman in our business. Uh, we, uh, we wound up being the largest egg wholesaler in four states. So we had a very successful business. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm an extremely strong believer in God's providence. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my customers called from McAllister, Oklahoma, which was almost 100 miles away, and they were out of eggs. Well, I had just placed an order in Ada, Oklahoma, for a 1971 Plymouth Duster 344 speed car. Mm-hmm. We had been waiting for two months for it to come in. Well, I was going to take a pickup to deliver the eggs. It was only a few cases. I was going to be back into that town on Friday anyway. So anyway, the dealership calls and says, uh, your car has come in. We've got it prepped, got it ready. I said, I will be there after a while. Loaded the eggs up in a little pickup. Drove straight to Ada, Oklahoma, loaded the eggs in this 71 Duster 340, and we boogied out. Now, mind you, in the church fellowship that I was raised, super strict, super legalistic. That extended to the fact that if you missed service on Wednesday nights, you have sinned egregiously. Mm-hmm. So we're boogieing down the highway, and we come to a little town called Stewart, Oklahoma. And... It's Wednesday. It's almost seven o'clock. It's time to go to church. And my wife wasn't raised in that environment. She was raised in a Methabapticostal, as I shared with you. (laughs) She didn't even always get to go to church. So being pressured legalistically, internally, to have to stop in the middle of a delivery for crying out loud to go to go to service on Wednesday night was just unheard of with her. She's done. No, it's okay. And I said, no, it's not okay. We're going to stop. So we stop, we go in, and they're having singing. And, uh, you know, just different men. Women did not do this. Women did not lead singing. And, you know, but we go in, and everybody turns like, we got visitors. (laughs) (laughs) 
on Wednesday night. <laughs> wow. Uh, or as some people said uh, when I early on when I first moved here and wound up at a party in the woods. What part of Etowah are y'all from anyway? <laughs> <laughs> that is a true story. Well, right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, different men would get up and lead a song. Well, I don't know why, but I said, I'll lead a song. And they were like, you will? I led singing when I was a kid. I don't ever do that anymore. Oh, okay. Okay, just. Just for the record, I was just going to ask if I, you would sing a hymn before we. No, left I will not. No, I, I, no, 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 no. You don't. You don't want to do. Want that to happen. So I get up and lead the singing, and after the service was over, I mean, I think every single person in that congregation came up to us, introduced themselves. They were so warm, loving, et cetera, et cetera, and they said, uh, "Well, who are you, et cetera?" We told them. My wife says, "By the way, he also preaches," and I was like. Shut up, woman. You know, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and they said, you preach? I said, well, yeah, yeah. They said, would you come back and preach for a Sunday? Wow. They said, the man who's been our preacher for 30 years is retired. He just, he's through, he's done. And I go, uh, well, yeah, if you want me to. So I went and preached. That is something of a coincidence, certainly. Yeah. Providence. Yeah. Okay, so I preach. This young, young woman responds to the invitation to be baptized. It was the first baptism they had had there in over 20 years. Really? Yes. Wow. You're hired. What have they been preaching? I don't know. I don't know. I literally don't know. Was this the same denomination that you're part, you were a part of? Yes, okay. yes. And so, needless to say, they yeah, I mean, they came up afterwards, and it's like, would you be our preacher? And I said, no, no. No, I'm just filling in. The next six months, I preached there at least twice a month. And every single week, it was, will you be our preacher? Now, mind you, this is before I ever went to seminary. I just had the background of my dad teaching me. Which was probably better than a lot of what seminaries do I guarantee you it was much better right. than some seminaries that I know about. So sure. anyway, they kept, they even... The elders would even get me in a business meeting and say, Don, we really, really, really want you to be our preacher. And I said, look, brethren, I've got a really good paying job. I mean, I'm making good money. It's what I want to do. I don't want to be a preacher. Well, I want to sell eggs. I want to sell eggs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had a new hot rod car, you know, had a great wife. Uh, we just bought a house and... Didn't have any bills, man. We were we were doing well. Okay. And after about the 20th time of turning them down, one of the elders uh, who used to play football for the Chicago Bears way, way back, at, at 85, 86 years old, he was still a mountain of a man. And his name was Brother Jewel. I've forgotten the first name. A, a totally intimidating personality. <laughs> I mean, especially for me since I'm so big. You know, <laughs> I'm 5'8", I'm for the record. And football, football humans in real life are astonishing. They you are. You just like walk up to one, somebody that's played pro ball, different different breed of this thing. This guy, yes. like I said, at 85 or 86 years old, he's still totally intimidating. He is huge. And yet he was one of the most kind, compassionate, humble men I've ever met in my life. Super godly man. 
But he said, well, you turned us down again, didn't you? And I said, yes, sir. He said, would you step over here with me? I'm going to die. <laughs> We're going to introduce you to the Lord. Son. That's right. That's right. <laughs> he put his arm around me, you know, stoops down. He stood six, seven still at 85, 86 That's years old. Wild. And uh, put his arm down around me and he says, now, Brother Don, you know I love you, don't you? I said, yes, sir. I hope you continue to love me. Yeah. He goes, Don, you have a really, really God-given gift for preaching the word. He said, uh, do I have to tell you what happens to people who don't use their talents? Hmm. No. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, we want you to be our preacher. But he said, if you're not going to be our preacher, you need to be someone's preacher. Okay, yeah. And he said, whatever that means you have to do to get to where you think you're qualified, you need to do that. And he really, really touched my heart because I knew that his, I knew of his love for the Lord, I knew of his love for the truth, and I knew of his love for me. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't just trying to arbitrarily push me into something that he didn't firmly believe in. Sure. And so I began checking into seminaries, and everyone that I checked, it just wasn't for us. And I finally found the one in Harrison, Arkansas, and came home and told my wife. Now, my, my wife had never lived anywhere except Wetumpka, Oklahoma. Never. And so when I came home, and we had just purchased our house. We, we hadn't been in our house just a matter of months. And I told her, babe, I think I want to be a preacher. And she was like, okay, <laughs> what does that mean? I said, that means I'm going to have to go to school. I mean, I could tell she was crushed. But she said, if that's what you think you have to do to serve the Lord, then that's what we're going to do. Yeah, that's good. And by the way, to back up, I had personally baptized her. Oh, uh, your b- wife? Before, before we were married. Uh, we would go out, when we would go out in park, we had our Bibles open. Honest to goodness, people. Yeah. Honest <laughs> to goodness, we did. <laughs> yeah, we all had our Bibles. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's try that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, you know, uh, she was attending worship uh, services with me. So I went out to, out to her house to pick her up one Sunday morning. And as we were starting to go out the door, she said, I got to say something to you. I said, okay. She said, I want to be baptized. Well, I just about fell over, you know. I was just beyond joyful and what yeah. have you. So anyway, like I said, we've been together now for 53 years. But I went, I went to seminary, and I moved from there. Uh, I was offered a job before I ever graduated. Uh, another one of those fortuitous, um, you know, providential things. My wife and I had been on a trip to California where I preached two meetings. And... Uh, that's what we call them in a church Christ when you have week-long preaching service, right? Mm-hmm. A, a meeting. And so um, we came back through Shawnee, Oklahoma, where my sister lived. And she's going, um, you going to be here this Sunday? I said, 
don't have plans to be. She said, why don't you stay over and why don't you preach for us? She said, the congregation where I attend, they're, lo- they're losing both their ministers. And they're just looking for guys to fill in. I said, whatever, you know. Okay, so she set it up. On that Sunday morning, I preached. I didn't, you know, didn't pick out a special sermon or anything. Just I preached. And after the service was over, three of the elders came up to me and said, can we talk to you? I said, about what? <laughs> they said, we need a preacher. I said, but I'm in, I'm in seminary. They said, when will you graduate? I said, I'm not quite a year off. They said, what about after you graduate? I said, I'll be looking for a job. They said, come, come to the back and talk to us. They had been looking for a minister for a year and a half mm. and had had who knows how many applicants. applicants. And so they said, well, will you come back again, you know, a couple of times so that the congregation can hear you some more and we can get to know you some more, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Long story short, I had six months left in seminary and they offered me the job. So I took it. And I served there for 11 years, wonderful, wonderful congregation of people. And more providence. I, uh, I began to change my personal theological views while there. Okay, well, around what year would you say this was? Uh, I moved to Shawnee, Oklahoma in 1975. Okay, so this is around 75 when your views are beginning to change? I, I started changing my views in approximately 76, 77. Okay. And... The, the congregation had a ladies' Bible class. And I always want to lay everything on the blame of the ladies, mind you. <laughs> I want to be clear that I'm blaming the women for this. Yeah, like every so, good minister should. Exactly. you you yes. got to do this. You see the ladies <laughs> looking at him here. From Eve to the grave. Yeah, yeah that's right. I'm well, sitting directly away. across from two ladies. <laughs> both of us with our arms crossed. Yeah. Yes, I both of us. Body language of speaking quite eloquently yeah, I, I here. I noticed one of them got an apple. Yeah. <laughs> Is it cold, actually? No? Okay. No, they're just, just very angry. Okay, yeah. just making sure. <laughs> so, on my very first day of that class, they because they said, well, you know, you're hired. First thing to do, you got to teach ladies Bible class. Okay, that's fine. That's great. So, I go in there, and I said, okay, ladies, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me what you want me to teach. And they said, well, we're currently finishing up on the following, but here's what we want you to teach. We want you to teach the Olivet Discourse. Now, Here's where it gets really interesting as far as my background is concerned. My father, as astute as a Bible student as he was, was totally 100% confused when it came to eschatology, and he often said so from the pulpit. When it came to Matthew chapter 24, he took the standard amillennial view, verses 1 to 34 has to, had to do with A.D. 70, the Lord's coming and destruction of the old covenant Israel. But verse 36, sometimes verse 35. But anyway, 35, 36, talking about the end of the world. But I remember as a young man getting together on the Sunday afternoons with my dad, my brother-in-law, and my oldest brother, and we talked Bible. I would leave to go catch tadpoles and crawdads for a while and then come back. So anyway, the topic of discussion almost invariably came back to the Olivet Discourse. And I do remember very distinctly my dad saying things like, well, 
I know that verses 1 to 34 had to do with AD 70 because verse 34 says, this generation shall not pass until all these things are fulfilled. He said, my trouble of it is, verse 29 to 31, it talking about the coming of the Lord. I know the Lord didn't come in that generation. I just don't know how to explain that. He was totally perplexed. And so that's where they would leave it. When I was in seminary, that was the same identical reaction that my professors had. Well, here's the traditional view. Is, is this, sorry to interrupt, is that, do you think that's part of the reason you chose that school? Because you said you bounced off a lot of places before you right. found one that was for you. So no, I, I, I had not a thought about eschatology okay. uh, when I went to that school. Uh, it, just, it just lined up nicely. It lined up nicely. Providence. Like I said, I'm, I'm a believer in God's <laughs> providence. Yes. Sorry. And, and so, um, here I am, I, 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 was, I was terrified to teach Matthew 24. I, I truly was. Because while I was in seminary, my professors didn't know how to explain it to any satisfaction. And so I, I responded to the request by the ladies. I said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, ladies. I said, I'll teach it, but you got to give me one year to prepare myself. And they were just like, what? You just graduated. You got a degree. What do you, what do you need to study for? I said, because I don't know what I believe. I know what the commentaries say. I know what my professor said. I know what my mom or dad, mom and dad said, but I don't know what I personally believe because I've never studied this for myself. And I, I, I have to be honest, about two or three months in, I knew that the concept of a divided dis- discourse was just not even close to right. right. I mean, it was like, and what I did, I, I got some old Bibles and I took the uh, parallel passages and I cut the parallel passages out, gave them to the secretary, and I said, I want you to blow those things up, make copies of them, as large as you can make them so that I can hang them on the wall, and from across the room, I can read them instead of flipping back and forth. Well, she didn't like that, but I won't go into that. But, <laughs> but anyway, I covered the walls with these parallel passages. And I mean, I'm just sitting here going, this is not difficult, but I've always been very, very concerned about taking views that are not well documented. I like to be conservative. Well, that's my term for it. I like to be conservative in my exegesis and in my declarations of what I believe. I, I, I don't want to get up and just spout off a bunch of stuff that, cannot, that I cannot document. And so even though after two or three months, I was convinced it's United Discourse, I, uh, I thought, well, I've, I've got to nail this down so finally that I would be willing to publicly debate it. That's the philosophy that I had. Sure. And so <laughs> I was ready at the end of the year. Now, mind you, at the end of the year or by the end, in that research period, I had already begun to see how the Olivet Discourse affects one's view of the book of Revelation. That's right. I mean, I was just like, where did this late date stuff come from? But I never said anything about that, mind you, because I never I never argued. I never questioned the late date. It was just, it was a given. Right. My dad never questioned it. So I start teaching. I took one year to teach the class. And as we would proceed through the class, 
you know, you'd see the wide eyes and you'd go the, whoa, <laughs> type of reaction. At the end of the year, I came down to the, to the end of it. I said, okay, ladies, you ask for it. There it is. Tell me what you think. Stone dead silence. Wow. And I'm thinking, well, I guess I better start packing. <laughs> this, may not, this may not turn out well. One of the more outspoken ladies of the congregation became our fast friends. She spoke up and she said, makes more sense than anything I've ever heard in my life. Well, that kind of opened the floodgates. I mean, it's just one, one lady after another. Absolutely. The wife of the song leader. Now, he, he had been the song leader there for 30 years at the time. Extremely stoic guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she spoke up and she said, well, I have to admit, it makes more sense than anything I've ever heard, but it's not what we teach in the churches of Christ. And about half of the ladies in the class goes, Juanita, what are you saying? Do we stick with what we've been taught or do we go with what the Bible actually says? And she goes, oh, no, no never mind. I'm, I'm dumb. Forget what I said. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, and that's the way it went. So I said, okay, what do you want me to teach? Book of Revelation. Isn't that no. amazing how, <laughs> isn't that amazing how, how easy a person's mind can hang in the balance oh. just based on social pressure. Oh, yeah. Well, just listen to Andy when we were going through this, and he's like, well, that makes total sense to me because yeah. as an atheist, he was listening to the words saying, all right, well, this makes sense. This generation shall not pass. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's common sense. Yeah, yeah. I, like yeah. we talked about audience relevance, Absolutely. and immediately as we talked about audience relevance, Andy was like, well, duh. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. all of us, like we were, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's like, oh, you mean you're talking about that they wrote a letter to somebody in the past and that it's just those guys there? And it's like, yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, Andy, that you weren't there sense. earlier when he said, somebody said, hey, guys, just remember, you're reading someone else's mail. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely great. It's and, worded like that and, too. And as yeah. exactly, yeah. and as we were teach, going through the all of a discourse, I'm just I'm agreeing with these women in your study that you're talking right. about. <laughs> is that Billy comes walking into the study and Andy's the one that's explaining it to him, <laughs> which is like this is awesome. You know? <laughs> like, just so you know, what Rick's saying is that well, that this guy Paul wrote this letter, or this person wrote this letter to this church, and it actually meant something to them then. Well, and, and, and he's like, oh, okay, that's good. It yeah. almost took us a year to go through it too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, like I said, when I asked Who them, said what, we're done. <laughs> yeah, we just did the ninth part, man. When they, when I asked them what they wanted me to teach next, it was Book of Revelation. I said, well, okay, you got to give me another year. See, I was looking for job security, is what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, after that, I would imagine. Yeah. But anyway, I began to dig into the dating because of the correlations that I had seen with yeah, the all of the discourse, and that just. Having never, ever questioned the late date, it literally blew my mind. Now, once again, back to seminary. The to explain, I need to explain to the guys, do you understand what he's talking about, the late date? The I can dating, infer what he's talking about. Yeah, and I want our audience to understand the dating of Revelation has been considered to be around 80, 96, which would be 26 years after the fall of Jerusalem mm -hmm. and the temple. So if he wrote it then, then how could it be future looking to it if it was written after the fact? Can I what ask you a question? Certainly. So after you taught that to those ladies, mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, you take another year mm -hmm. to study Revelation, did those ladies ever mention it to their spouses? Yes. Did they ever mention it to you? Absolutely. The spouses did? Yes. 
Were they what? receptive? Yes. Oh. There, okay. What happened? Where was the men's Bible study? They didn't have one. They only had they only had a so ladies. So only ladies need to study the Bible. Yes. Uh, well, men, men, well, men listen, don't need women, to be taught, women, Sarita. Oh, they're yeah. smart. The reason <laughs> we're the reason for yeah. <laughs> and it's heathens, not the heathens. reason for this, as you undoubtedly know, is that women rule. Wait, what? I said the reason for that is because women rule. Women rule. <laughs> yeah. What, no, what no there literally was not a men's separate Bible study. Now, I taught during, you know, uh, class on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights, of course. Uh, but that was the men's class, so to speak, obviously a mixed class. But the the question that you ask is a great question because without any question, the women would go home and share with their husbands. And I would have men coming to me saying, what are you saying? Blah, blah, blah. And I would share. And it just went so smoothly. And before I knew it, there was a core group of 40, maybe even 50 people in that congregation that were coming to me going, okay, if Matthew 24 and 25 was fulfilled in AD 70, and if Revelation is about that, then where did, get, where did we get the idea that Jesus is coming back one day? Right. And being kind of enamored with job security, I would say, uh, did you come up with that yourself? <laughs> and, and I was, and I would literally put the onus on them to think for themselves. Sure, and I, I, much I, like your father did to you, exactly, exactly. right. I, I, I honestly wasn't running from any issue of job security. I, I've never worried about that in my life. Uh, so what? What year is this? Approximately, uh, I, I was there from seventy-five to eighty-five. Okay, I, so I, a total is, of eleven years, actually. So, like, probably seventy-five. Give a year, say seventy-seven. Ish when you probably started doing this uh, all of it thing. Yes. Yeah, and that's I mean, look at the year for that, and you have a church, and you teach that, and it goes over like that. Mm-hmm. Pretty incredible. Yep. It, well, it was totally awesome. the The congregation there was was a, almost a once in a lifetime situation for a minister. The average tenure of ministers in the churches of Christ is two and a half years. Oof. Yeah. It's not great job security. And, and by the way, in, in the rest of the denominational world, it's not much longer than that. Uh, I mean, you, you, you have lots of Baptist ministers who are there 25, 30 years, you know. But on an overall average throughout the nation, it's two and a half, three years. Before the congregation throws them out? Yes. Or they or they run for the congregation? Run. Yes. Sure. Um, what about what about the, the politics in the church are just— Listen, the politics are one reason why I'm glad I'm no longer a pulpit minister somewhere. Uh, I, I love I love the preaching. I really do. I love the teaching. I love people. But when you get, all you have to do is get one person with a burr under their saddle, one person that's a little jealous, one person that for whatever reason under the sun gets crosswise, then they can spoil the entire congregation. And I've seen it happen many, many, many times. Uh, thankfully, not in my situation except one time. Uh, I was fired for preaching preterism. And the reason I was fired there is because the wealthiest people in the congregation didn't like what I was preaching. And because I, I was not then, I still am not a country club guy. I, uh, I like to get dirty working on old cars. I... Uh, I like to drive old cars, and um, I was—I uh, started driving 
because I bought it and I liked it, I started driving to the office every day, a 68 Mustang that looked terrible, needed to be painted. Well, I did that eventually. I used to do all my own paint and body work. But nonetheless, I know that she would drive by. She would even come to the office, and she would just look at that car and just cringe. And she went to the elders. Something's got to be done about Dawn. And the wealthy woman did? Yes. She didn't offer to buy you a new car? Strangely enough, no. <laughs> or, or, or even have it painted. Like, no. yeah, yeah, if you don't like my car, you know how to solve that. Uh, but no. Uh, you know, uh, that's why I am glad I'm no longer in the localized pulpit ministry. I, um, I still do, as most of you, I think, know. I do my morning musings on YouTube five days a week. Uh, I am on radio every Tuesday evening. I do other additional work, and I'm thrilled to be here to share uh, my story here as well. So, um, Billy, I interrupted you, and I didn't mean to. Oh, no. I'm uh, so sorry. I just had another question. Oh, yeah. What about the, the most important woman, your wife? Where was she at when you were going through this? Because, I mean, she was by your side to, to start ministry. I so would— you understand that in the Church of Christ, and in all reality and all fairness, it's this way in most denominations, uh, we don't nurture differences. Uh, I've often said that in the Churches of Christ, we shoot our wounded. And if you differ from the traditions, then you're wounded and you're to be discarded. And so I would literally sit at my office during the day and study and try to correlate what I was learning with what I was seeing in scriptures. I mean, with what I had been taught, excuse me, by my denomination and say, well, here, here's what, because I had a whole row of commentaries by prominent Church of Christ ministers. So I'd, you know, I'd run onto a statement of scripture that wasn't what I had always heard from the prominent ministers in the Churches of Christ. So I'd grab out a commentary by the really, really prominent guys, you know, the college professors in the Churches of Christ, and I would read it, and it didn't agree at all with what the Bible was saying. And it's like, oh boy, I got a problem here. Well, one of the things, along with everything else that I've shared that my father taught me, I, I can remember many, many, many occasions that my father would say, okay, Don, you study the Bible for yourself. Now, read all sorts of documentation, read commentaries, listen to preachers, you study for yourself. And, say, and he would say, if the Bible disagrees with them, you take your stand on the Bible. It doesn't matter what a college professor says. It doesn't matter what a commentator says. It doesn't matter how famous the preacher is. You take your stand on the Bible. Now, if you're shown that your view is wrong of what the scriptures say, then change. Don't be afraid to change. Well, it sounds like us here, huh? I mean, what you just described that your dad said to you is the same thing that Paul said to Timothy. Absolutely. Study to show thyself yes. approved, right? Yeah. And so that's what you're supposed to be doing. You don't just believe what everybody else tells us. We got to figure this out on our own. A real good friend of mine said to me years ago, and when he said it, I was I was literally shocked at the moment because it didn't register exactly the power of it. And we were, but he were talk, we were talking, and he came from a very, very background, changed here, changed that, and, and what have you, and beca had become a full preterist. And we were talking about all the changes he had made in his life. And he said, well, Don, here's the thing. 
if you're not willing to be wrong, you'll never be right. And I, I literally go, wait a minute, what? <laughs> and he goes, okay, if you're not willing to be wrong, you'll never be right. If you're never willing to humble yourself and say, I've been wrong, then you're never going to take another step forward to know the truth. That's just the way it is. We could use a big dose of that in our society right now. No one is willing to say, hey, you know what? We screwed up. Absolutely. You are 100% correct. And it's so, I've never seen America as divided as it is right now. It's, it's absolutely I'm assuming horrible. you were talking about the Republicans. <laughs> Boy, I'm kidding. You know listen to Edge. Remember the Grizzly Edge? I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Back to the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, all, all of this is in the mix, right? Uh, all of these things are happening. So I would study. And there were times in my study, in the privacy of my study, I would literally be in tears. And I'm not a man that cries, I must tell you. Uh, my wife has told me a gazillion times, it, it's okay for a man to cry. And I, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> go do some push-ups. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so anyway, but I would go home and I'd lay the Bible down in front of her with the, with the passage that I had been struggling with, Right. That had caused me to come to tears because it was so diametrically opposed to what I've been taught and what all the commentators said. And I would go, okay, babe, tell me what that, what that passage teaches. Boom, boom. Pegged it every single time. And I go, Argh. and she wow. goes, what's wrong? And you see, while we were studying, while we were still dating, I always told her that in the churches of Christ, and this is what I heard all the time growing up, mind you. This was, this was a cliche, a well-worn cliche. If we're wrong, show us, and we will change. I mean, that's what I heard prominent preacher after prominent preacher after prominent preacher say from the pulpit. So when I would say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's, that's troublesome. And she'd go, why? And I said, because if I preach it that way, we're going to get fired. She'd go, wait a minute, babe. You always told me that in the churches of Christ, all anyone has to do is show us where you're wrong and you'll change. I said, yeah, but I lied. I said, that, that's not what we do. I said, it's a cliche. <laughs> you know? And she goes, but it, it is what it says. And I go, I know that. And I said, but if I preach that, we're going to get fired. And her only response ever was, can you take a good long time before you make up your mind? <laughs> and I said, well, I want to be absolutely sure before I ever, you know, put it out there publicly. And she said, well, to me, that's what it says. And she said, as a minister, you've got to preach what you believe to be true. She said, regardless of the cost, she said, if we get fired, then we get fired. That's why I meant when she has always been my best friend and she has always been my main support, no matter what, in the deepest, darkest depths of depression, literally, she is the one that has brought me up and brought me out. So uh, when, like with what Billy was asking you is like, whenever you started understanding preterism, began to teach preterism, was she in that class? No, she was in my classes every single night when I went home. <laughs> I mean, so, that's... Uh, and, and she is still that to this day. Yeah. And was she in agreement with you on what you were teaching? Yes. 
Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. He he said she thought it was a little obvious, I think. Oh, it was. I mean, she said that to me, but this is what it says. What's the problem? It's not what we teach. That's the problem. Wow. Uh, So uh, she has ever and always been my support and my encouragement and uh, and my courage in in many, many instances. Uh, It's amazing when you talk to people who weren't raised with the same prejudices we were by oh. what we were taught. I mean, come from Catholic, then I went to Wesleyan, and then Baptist. It's you, you take all, of, strip all of that away, and just like Andy's able to just say, "Well, that's what it says." Yeah, and, and the the joy of it is, down through the years, I have met so many people, and I encounter people on the internet, uh, you know, emails and, and blogs and what have you, virtually every single day with that attitude that. They're willing to be wrong in order to be right. Their, their only love is the truth. Their only love is the Lord. That's all they care about. Uh, they're not worried about what great-great-grandma and grandpa believed and, and what have you. Uh, and I'll share one very quick story. At the congregation at, Shawn- at uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma, I moved there from Shawnee, another providential deal that I won't get into. They, they, they came and solicited me, offered me a financial package I couldn't turn down. So I moved down there. And I, I started preaching the principles of hermeneutic, audience relevance. I started out in a class of approximately 30 people on a Sunday night. Now, a, a Bible class on Sunday nights is unusual in the churches of Christ. That's normally just to get together and sing and pray and, you know, a lesson and what have you. But they asked me to go ahead and teach a class. And they had, you know, the kids in classes and all this kind of stuff. So I started this class. And I don't even know what our initial subject was, but it started growing. Now, this was a congregation of approximately 400 people, and um, we reached up to 450 at one point. But nonetheless, here we are on Sunday nights, and it grew from 30 to 40. And so I asked them at the end of one course, I said, what do you want me to teach? And they said, we want you to teach us how to study the Bible. Now, I had been laying down foundational principles all the mind, all the time, mind you. And so I said, well, okay, that, that's fine. I said, uh, first question that I want to get in front of us is, how many of you in here have a Strong's Utterbridge Concordance? Now, mind you, this is before I knew what a computer was. Yeah. I'd, Strong's Concordance. We've talked about that many times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have yep. one. Yep. I do too. Now, yeah, mind, you, mind you, by this time, the class has grown to 50 to 75. I mean, it was growing every single week. And uh, when I asked the question, how many of you have a Strong's Unabridged Concordance? One person out of 75 held their hand up. And I was like, really? I mean, I grew up with a Strong's Unabridged Concordance. That's, that's one of the things my dad taught me day one almost. You want to study a subject? Get your Strong's out. Look it up. Okay. So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I said, next question, how many of you have ever heard of Smith's Bible Dictionary? Mm-hmm. Not one person. Wow. How many of you, have you, of you have ever heard of a Vines Expository Vines. Dictionary yep. of the New Testament? Not one person. I'm like, good grief, you don't have any of the basic study tools to start studying. And so I said, okay, let, let me do something. At the time, there was a, a place called Christian Books, and I knew the man that owned it. He was a preterist, by the way. Oh, really? So I called him up. His name is Walt Hibbard. And I called him up. I said, Walt, here's the situation. I want you to give me a price for 50 copies 
of Strong's Underbridge Cotton Course, like nine bucks a piece plus freight. So I went back to class and I said, okay, here, you know, sold 75. So I called Welt up. We ordered 75. Everybody had an underbridge concordance. And it went from there. And I, I, I literally started teaching some of the most primary rules of hermeneutic. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Audience relevance. Right. And the people... Uh, uh, Everybody in the class was literally blown away. We've never heard this before. Wow, this is cool. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, I thought everybody heard this. Right. But yeah. I wasn't even taught it in preacher school, seminary. And, and yet, the, the more that I taught it, the more excitement there was. After, after a period of only a couple of months, we had 150, 200 people in the class on Sunday night. That, that had never happened in the history of that congregation. And this is just about how to study the Bible. That's all in the world I mean, it was. Look how excited they are. They just yeah. want to know how to study the That's, Bible. And I did not touch, literally did not touch eschatology until I went over all of these basic principles, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Here's how you use your strongs. Here's how you use a vines. And I gave him the warnings. Vines is dispensational. You got to watch his his interpretations, et cetera, et cetera. So after were you guys so, using the Schofield Bible? No, we were not. <laughs> <laughs> a few people in the class had Schofield well, Bibles, course. and they're going, "Wait, wait a minute, yeah, wait Anybody a minute." Says, yeah. You ain't rightly dividing this <laughs> That's one. That's right. So anyway, I, I went through the basics, and I said, "Okay, folks, now what do you want us to study to apply what you have learned?" All of it discourse. Really? No joke. And like I said, by this time, we're up 150, 200 people in that class. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And we were in a great big expanded room, huge, really a huge room. I said, we're going to put tables all around the room. We're going to divide up the class. We're going to have six or seven, eight, maybe 10 people Around a table, we're going to appoint a, a group leader, and I said, what we're going to do is every single time we meet, the assignment of the class, every single group will read the same group of scriptures or maybe take you know a different set of verses, but I said, you're going to study it among yourselves, and then you're going to discuss it, and you're going to present your conclusion to the group leader. And as time allows, next class, the group leader will say, here's what we gleaned, applying the principles. Here's what we gleaned from this group of, of verses. That's a super fun way to set up a study. Oh, oh it was. Yeah. Were you having a blast? And keep, I was keep having <laughs> an unprecedented blast. Yes. Because you know what? I didn't have to teach anything. Mm. I literally did not have to teach anything. If someone in a group would go, Don, we need your help. I'd go over to the table and I said, well, what's your question? And if it was something, you know, that I thought that they ought to be able to go ahead and work out, I would say, okay, you're the group leader. Apply the, apply the rules that we've learned and just work it out. And if you can't figure it out, call me back over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> never a second call. I, never a second call. Wow. And okay. you stayed out of the crosshairs. Do what? And you stayed Kept out of the crosshairs. Out of the crosshairs. <laughs> it most assuredly did. And I would go home and I'd tell Jan. She wasn't even in the class. I would tell Jan, I said, this is unbelievable. Now, mind you, half the church is not in there, right? Right. But the half that was, they're sharing with the other half. And the other half, they don't have a clue what's going on. 
Where did this kind of stuff come from? And the people in the class are going, dude, it's easy. <laughs> and it's in the Bible. It's in it. We saw it for ourselves. We dug it out ourselves. And of course, they were getting, but we've never taught that the churches of Christ. So some of the members of the class were a little less tactful than they should have been probably. So they would just literally go, look, don't be so dumb. This is how it's. This is how it works. Well, you know, it just doesn't set real, real well. And in the meantime, I was t- teaching a class on Second Peter chapter three, and I go over that, and this extremely wealthy lady got extremely hostile in the class, and I knew about right then my fate was sealed. And so, uh, that experience, though, of teaching people how to study the Bible mm-hmm. was so thrilling. And one step beyond that, the elders actually asked me to teach on Sunday night, a class on Revelation. They saw how that class had grown. And they said, boy, this is great. We have done teach on Revelation. And I'm going, oh yeah, this is going to be rough. Because I knew that the majority of the elders took the late date. And one of them in particular uh, had had no business being an elder because he had a Napoleonic complex, mm-hmm. had literally no business being an elder. So anyway, they want me to teach a class. We started, and in that class, we started out with approximately 100, 125 people. It was in the main auditorium, okay? And that's about what we had in attendance on Sunday night anyway. So out of 450 people, mind you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just the way it works. So I started teaching on it. And I said, what we're going to do first is we're going to talk about the dating of the book of Revelation. I said, now what I'm going to do, I'm not going to tell you what I believe. I'm going to present the evidence. Here's the evidence for this date. Here's the evidence for that date. And you're going to make up your own mind about it. In a matter of, Maybe two months. I was fired. <laughs> Not yet. It wasn't far off. But in a matter of maybe, maybe, maybe two months, we were having 300 to 350 people. In, That's amazing. In that class. That's great. Okay. Well, the trouble of it is, Little Miss Rich Lady was extremely unhappy, even though I had not taken a position, mind you. I was presenting the evidence and asking them to make up their mind. And to me, the evidence is so overwhelming that people were just, where did the late day come from? And she didn't like it. She didn't like it at all. Yeah, It only actually has one source, correct? Irenaeus is the the chief source for the the late date. I mean, the only one. There's some ancillary testimony, but most of it's dependent on him. So anyway, um, the elders got spooked because this wealthiest lady in the congregation didn't like what was going on. And, of course, there were some other voices lent their voice against me as well with her. And so <laughs> you'll have to excuse me here. Uh, it, it's still hilarious to me to this day, even though it's really, really, really sad. Okay. Uh, one of the elders called me out to his house one day. And he says, Don, you're going to have to stop teaching Revelation. I said, do what? 
And he goes, well, we're, the elders want you to stop teaching on the book of Revelation. I said, why? He said, well, we just got too many people asking too many questions. I said, isn't that fantastic? Yeah, it's like, that's where the magic's at. I said, I thought that's what we were here for is to learn. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, but. I said, Gary, his name's Gary Wilson. And, and look, Gary was a closet preterist. Oh, uh, okay. He really honestly was, but he was under the thumb of the other elders. Oh, another Gary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I said, Gary, when, just tell me this. I said, when was the last time this congregation had 350 plus people on a Sunday night in a class? He said, never in the history of this congregation. I said, doesn't that tell you something? He said, yeah, we got too many people asking questions. <laughs> I said, Gary, why are we here? Are we here to learn what the Bible says, to feel free to investigate, to feel free to study, or are we just going to take tradition and regardless of evidence? Well, I, I know, Don, I, I know. And he said, you do know I agree with your position. I said, Gary, you know I haven't stated my position. <laughs> he said, yeah, but I know what you believe. <laughs> you yeah. Okay. He said, well, okay, okay. He said, let me talk to the other elders. Now, I'm not embellishing this story. You have to understand this. Wow. He called me back out to his house the next Wednesday night, or Wednesday afternoon, and he says, okay, Don, we've uh, we made a decision. I said, okay, what's that? I said, or he said, we're going to allow you to go ahead and teach the book of Revelation, but only the passages that don't teach anything about eschatology. What? In Revelation? That, yeah. <laughs> I stood there literally dumbfounded. I said, Gary, are you serious? He goes, yeah, that's our decision. You, you can teach anything in Revelation that doesn't have anything to do with eschatology. I said, grab your Bible. And because he continued, he said, what we want you to do is we want you to uh, focus now on the seven letter, letters to the seven churches. And I said, and you want me to teach anything not related to eschatology? And he said, yeah, now, Don, if eschatology is in the given text, then you're free to teach. I said, oh. I said grab your Bible. He said, okay. I said, Revelation 2, letter, 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 letter. Revelation 3, letter, letter. Hold fast what you have until I come. Behold, I come quickly. <laughs> you know, right. On and on. And I said, Gary, what were the elders thinking when they said, I can, you, they want me to teach the letters to the seven churches, but not eschatology? And he, uh, he just literally face palmed. He literally did, and he said, Don, I don't know what we were thinking. I said, well, Gary, let me give you a clue. You weren't. Right. Did he say, I'm going back, I'll come back later? Yes. Uh, second. <laughs> he said, okay. This is you hilarious. know he drew the short straw there. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. They were like, Gary, you're up. you got to deliver all this bad news. Yeah. You're on. Yeah. They casted lots. I, I, I mean, it was just... So, the next Sunday, one of the elders came up to me, the, one of the other elders, and he was a real milk, milk toast, wishy-washy type of guy. He said, boy, Donna, I realize we put you in a really bad condition, so he, or position. So he said, here's what we're going to do. You, you can teach the class tonight, but you're done. And I said, Edgar, do you realize this is going to cause massive troubles in this congregation? 
I said, you've got people who are hungry to learn the word. And I said, have I taken a position personally in this class that is controversial? He said, no, you haven't, you haven't told anybody what you actually believe you're, yourself. I said, okay, then what's the problem? All I'm doing is presenting the evidence for this view, evidence for this view. I said, tell me what I've done wrong. Well, we, we, we just can't have this. Too many questions. So he said, tonight's your last night to teach that class. I said, I'm telling you right now, you are causing trouble, internal strife in this congregation. Woe to you. Woe to you. Okay, so... It, That's in the Bible. Did you point that out? Well, yeah, yeah I, I tried to be very genteel and very tactful. You could have talked about that. It wasn't I eschatological. Could, I know. <laughs> well, actually it is. But anyway. <laughs> so anyway, I stopped. I, I didn't, you know, people were coming to me, Don, what in the world's going on? I said, talk to the elders. I said, not my decision. And our attendance went back down to 100, 125 on Sunday night. Didn't seem to bother them a bit, you know. And... So it went from there. I was te- I mentioned that I had been teaching a class on Second Peter three, or Second Peter. I had gone through chapter three. I told him what I believed, but I did so extremely tactfully. I, I tried to be the same way with that that I was Revelation and the dating. I would present the evidence. Here's the traditional view. Here's evidence. I've got to tell this real quick story. You go right ahead. There were two little old ladies. You know, every preacher's got to have a couple of little old ladies Mm -hmm. that love him and nurture him and, you know, just really take care of him. Well, these two little old ladies, they were both in their 80s, and it was Ruby and Maggie. They were the sweetest things. I'm telling you, I I still miss them to, to this day, and they've been gone 25 years. They were just absolutely wonderful. So anyway... Here I am teaching along in 2 Peter chapter 3. They had sat there and never said a word. I didn't know what their thoughts were. After service or after class one Sunday, and they were inseparable, by the way. Where one went, the other one went. They walk up to me, and Ruby, who was the spokeslady, she goes, honey, We've just got to ask you a question. I go, I don't want, I don't want to make them mad. <laughs> you know, yeah. just, those are my honeys. Mm-hmm. And they said, um, are you saying the Lord's already come? And I said, well, Ruby, you've been in the class. Maggie, you've been in the class. What do you personally think the Bible says? And Ruby goes, I know what you're doing. And she said, let me tell you something. My daddy taught the Lord came in AD 70. Really? And I'm going. And you didn't know that? I did not know that. No way. He was a Baptist minister. (laughs) Wow. He was a Baptist minister. And she said, now, Don, I've got his Bible at the house somewhere, unless we lost it when we moved into the assisted living. But she said it was full of notes, you know, in the margins and everything. But she said... He preached that the Lord came in AD 70 and was not coming back. And she said, the very first time, she said, when I became a member of the Church of Christ and I heard somebody preach on 2 Peter 3, the earth's going to be burned up and blah, blah, blah. She said, I'm sitting there going, 
Where'd that come from? Yeah. <laughs> she said, I thought that was the strangest doctrine I'd ever heard in my life. Wow. And I'm going, and I hugged her. <laughs> yeah, I, I just hugged her up. I said, that is totally awesome. So they they got to stay your honeys. They did. Well, and matter of fact, <laughs> when, when Ruby told her story, Maggie told hers, and she said, my daddy was not a preacher, but he believed the same thing. And I'm like, and like I said, they're in their 80s, and this came from way, way back, right? Right. Ruby never could find the Bible, her dad's Bible. And I was just crushed over it. But anyway, during the teaching of that class, one of the elders, who wound up being one of the elders at a preterist church, came to me and said, you need to write a book. I was going to ask that question. Yeah. yeah. When did you start writing books? It, my very ver- very first book was published in 1990, and it was entitled "The Late Great Kingdom." Second Peter three, "The Late Great Kingdom," and it's now I like to type as I research. The juices flow as I'm typing, mm-hmm. and so uh, I've become fairly proficient at typing, and so I can I mean I can just keep right up with my thoughts pretty well. Uh, Way, way back before I learned to type, I was like sitting here writing this out longhand, you know, as I had writer's cramp all the time. (laughs) But anyway, uh, he just told me, he said, Don, you really, really need to put this material in book form. He said, this is is fantastic stuff. I said, well, you do know this is really controversial. He said, doesn't matter. He said, this needs to be taught. And the huge majority of the class was loving it. The few exceptions. And they were sitting there, you know, all sold up. Wouldn't even ask a question. It's just like, I'm not, I'm not going to learn. I'm, I'm, I don't care what you say. I'm just not going to learn. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I published the book. Uh, a couple of members of the congregation. Now, this is way before short-run digital pruning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, way back when, you had to have get a minimum of 5,000 books printed in order to get the cost down where you could actually sell it to where people could afford it. Well, a couple of the members of the congregation stepped up and paid for the publishing. Oh, wow. And so then we went through that when Gary DeMar was here. He remember he talked about how hard it was to do books back then. Oh, it was just, it was horrible. Yeah. I mean, when when you got, when you got a hundred boxes or 50 or whatever it happened to be of boxes, where are you going to put them? And we, we just had boxes of books everywhere. And so uh, the short-run digital printing has been literally a godsend for us. So I published the book, started selling it. And next thing you know, we have elders from across town in Ardmore, Oklahoma, coming to visit my elders. So you got to fire that man. He's a heretic. Now, the the ironic thing about this is, in the churches of Christ, it is preached that we are, every single congregation is totally autonomous, totally independent. No other congregation has a right to interfere in the proceedings, you know, and the decisions of any other congregation. Yet here they were coming over saying, you've got to fire Don Preston. Hello? And when my, when my elders called me in and they told me about all this, I said, hey, Brandon, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you guys still believe in congregational autonomy? And it was like, oh, well, uh. <laughs> you know? I mean, they were caught red-handed. They were getting calls from New York, California, New Mexico, Arizona. You got to fire that guy. So they did. 
what happened, they, uh, after, after they forbade me to teach on Revelation anymore, that really caused some bad blood, as I told them it would. Well, when the book got published. Wait, you were asked to quit teaching that particular subject, but they left you on as the lead pastor? Yes. Oh. I just couldn't teach on Revelation. I guess I misunderstood. I don't know. I guess I kind of blanked out that you went to a different church. No, no, not yet. No, not You're yet. You're at the same church. Yes. That they told, okay. Yes. All right. I was lost. Okay, so I published the book. All the controversy started. And mind you, I had given each one of the seven elders a copy of my manuscript before it was ever published. I gave it, I gave it to them in a elders meeting. And I said, now, brethren, this is controversial stuff. This is not the traditional Church of Christ stuff. And to a man, they all said, but we've been in your class and we agree with it. This needs to be out there. You need to get this book published. I said, well, okay. <laughs> Just understand when it's published, fires are going to start. Well, this is our business, nobody else's. So after it's published, the controversy starts. They're going, we're getting calls from everywhere. What in the world are you doing? You're publishing this book, uh, controversial. One of the elders, I personally handed him the copy, and he caught me in the hallway one night, on a Wednesday night, I think it was, whatever. And he goes, you know, Don, all of this controversy could have been avoided if you would have let us know what this book was about and that you were getting ready to publish. And I said, let me tell you something. His name is Bill. He's the one <laughs> with, with the Napoleonic, you know, attitude. I said, uh, do not approach me and tell me if I would have let you know what this was about, this wouldn't have happened. He said, well, you should have. I said, let me ask you a question, Bill. I said, you remember that manuscript I gave you with the other elders in the business meeting and told you it was controversial? You needed to read it. And to a man, every one of you said, publish the book. And he goes, is that what there was? <laughs> I said, God, yeah. It's so common. They don't. They don't. I said, Bill, don't. have you ever even read a page of it? And he goes, no, it's still in the manila envelope on, on my chest. I said, then do, do not come to me and accuse me of being the one causing trouble here. You had your opportunity to study this issue with me. You said everything was cool. You said you agreed with it. And now you tell me you haven't even read what I said. I, I spoke very plainly with him. Revelation 21.8, liars go to hell. Oh, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I have, you know, a similar, obviously not on the level that you have, but very similar situations where when I try to express, you know, what I believe, regardless, it doesn't even have to be eschatology, just whatever I believe. And if I use the scripture as the reference that I use, and it's not being drawn out of context, it's within context. Um, it's it's so surprising of the believers. That's what that's why we're actually in this room tonight. Yeah. Is because we want to continue to learn and challenge ourselves and believe what the Bible actually says. And boy, oh boy, I just wish people would just calm down and you know, like that that gentleman Bill, like he didn't even try, but he's so ready to be the the staunch hard yes. jerk that he was, yeah. 
but he doesn't. He, he's he didn't even do or honor what he said that he did. No, uh, and the, yet they hold the power. Yes, there there were four of the seven that in the final analysis of it actually were full preterists, but they didn't have the courage to stand up to the other three. And that's that's the way it played out. And, you know, what, what was additionally sad, when all the controversy started, they got me in on one, one, one Sunday afternoon. They said, okay, Don, we, we need to understand what, what it is you're saying. I said, brother, I've shared this with you from the very beginning. I said, I haven't hidden anything from you. I said, so what is it you don't understand? And they said, well, you know, we, we've... Their famous saying, they said it over and over a million times. They said, well, we've got to do something. I said, what do you mean by that? They said, well, we, you know, we've got too much controversy swirling. I said, well, what I'm reading from that is you're going to fire Don Preston. Oh, no, no, no. No, we're, we, we're not going to fire Don. Don, you're the best. Pre-. And they said this repeatedly. I'm not patting myself on sure. the back. They just said, you're the best preacher this congregation's ever had. I said, then why are you going to fire me? I said, we're not. I said, yes, you are. I said, I'm not naive, brethren. I've been around the block a couple of times. I know what happens when you get some people in the congregation that are upset, like we have now. So I said, you will fire me. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. Okay, so it, it kept fomenting and fermenting over a little while. One of the other elders, one of the three, came out to my house on one occasion, I happened to be in the garage working on an old Mustang and had a letter, handed me the letter. And it was a letter the con- that the elders were going to read to the congregation. And it said, once again, this is not a direct quote, but it's the accurate depiction of what the letter said. From henceforth, this congregation is forbidden to study the subject of eschatology. Wow. So stop reading the Bible. So... And- <laughs> When you forbid someone to research the truth, Mm -hmm. that, I don't want to use this word, it's very overused in this time period, (laughs) it's almost fascistic. It's what? Fascistic. Fascism. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. When you refuse to let someone research for themselves the truth. Yes. Forbid it. Mm -hmm. Well, to show you to what extent, and I told the elder, when I read it, I said, if you get up and read that congregation, you're going to split the congreg- congregation wide open. And he goes, you really think so? I said, no, I know so. I said, I know people. And I said, I know there are enough people in this congregation who are interested in studying the Word of God. And I said, when, if you get up and tell them they can't study their own Bibles in the privacy of their home, you, I said, do you think they're going to stand for that? Well, the very next Sunday, they got up and read the letter. And there was a fellow there who had been a Catholic, came up to one of, he, there was this one Napoleonic uh, elder, the other the elder who read it, and me, and this guy comes up, and he was a policeman. Pretty hard-nosed guy, i got to tell you. <laughs> he, you know, he, he knew all about dealing with hard cases. And he said, okay, Brother Bill, the Napoleon, he said, um, are you, the elders, telling me, a member, that I cannot pick up my Bible in the privacy of my own home and study eschatology? And Mr. Napoleon said, finger pointing, that's precisely what we're telling you. 
This is wild. Who do you think you are? Well, uh, his name is Mike Sweet, this policeman. He said, well, let me tell you something. I left the Catholic Church for exactly and precisely that attitude. And he said, I can leave this one, too. He's, and he got in his face. He said, you're not going to tell me what I can study and what I can't study. And needless to say, uh, I wasn't Who do you there. think you are, the Pope? Well, that's the, that's the general gist of that congregation, <laughs> right. uh, of that con- conversation. And I wasn't there because I told him, I said, I'm not going to be there for the reading of that letter. I said, I'm just not. And they said, well, it might be best for you not to be. So I wasn't. Over 100 people got up and walked out. And over the next couple of weeks, another another 30 or 40 left. And they started a congregation. And they were meeting in a little rock building down at what is known as Lake Murray, which is the number one tourist spot in Oklahoma just about. Wonderful little facility. And uh, they contacted me and they said, uh, would you come down and speak for us? Well, the congregation had said they would continue to support me financially until I got a job or until they hired somebody. And I, when they told me that, I said, no, you won't. I said, you're going to find any way, any excuse at all to cut me off financially. Oh, no, no, we wouldn't do that. And I said, you also told me you weren't going to fire me. I said, you know, I, I said, I don't believe a word you guys say now. So they called me and they said, would you come down and preach for me? For us, And I said, well, you know, if I do, I will be summarily dismissed. They said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So I went down and I preached for them. And I said, uh, by the way, brethren, I've heard you have an opening for a minister. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of laughed and everything. And uh, I said, I'd like to apply. I'd like to be the first to apply. So that's how that congregation started. And uh, I served with them for 16 years. Wow. That's terrific. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, when, we, when we established the congregation, I told them that my goal and that they needed to be aware of it my goal was to one day step away from the local pulpit and to have a universal global ministry, travel to whole seminars. You know, I wasn't doing videos at the time, didn't know how. But nonetheless, uh, that was the basis upon which a congregation was built. They knew that the time would come uh, that I would want to step away and to do a wider ministry. And I kept having more and more and more and more opportunities to preach at seminars literally all around the world. I've been blessed to be to, I've been to Australia three times. I've been to France and Great Britain. You know, it's just, it's just been a ball. Yeah. Uh, and then COVID hit and put a stop to all that. But nonetheless. Um, now, along the way, you've, you've written how many books? I have two that are, Lord willing, ready to be published this year. Uh, that will make, I think, I, and I honestly don't keep track. I just, I just write and publish and go on to the next project. Really, sure. uh, I, pardon me, I believe it's thirty-five. 35. It may, it, it may be thirty-four. I don't really know, but it, it's, it's somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, I was, I, when I was studying about you, I was reading through them, and I didn't read all of the titles. But one, if you haven't written, that I'd like you to write is how to study the Bible. 
You know, I actually have an outline started. I would love to have a copy of that because uh, as a Catholic, you know that we were oh, told not to study it. Absolutely. And then go to the Wesley, and I was lucky enough to be in John Maxwell's church, so he did such a good job preaching. I didn't study as much as I should have. And then you get to the Baptist, and I was working there, so you you, you study, but you're playing catch-up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I have uh, I made a series of videos and they're available on, on YouTube. Just type in Don Preston on on how to how to study the Bible. I think so. Well, I, I was on your YouTube channel, so I'll okay. look at that. Yeah, it's it's there, and I had fabulous fabulous response to it as far as people's you know favorable response to it. But um, it, it's a vast, difficult subject to read. Hermeneutic is, in one sense, it's common sense, but prophecy is a totally different beast. <clears throat> and becoming familiar with the New Testament interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. You know, dispensationalists go to the Old Testament and it's, well, it says what it means, means what it says. They're going to return to the land. They're going to have the temple. They're going to have priesthood uh, sacrifices. Therefore, you know, Israel's got to be restored to the land. 1948, blah, blah, blah. And when... when when I have shared with some dispensational friends, and matter of fact, one of the debates that I had, uh, Doctor um, Raymond um, Brown, Mike Brown, Michael Brown. Oh, Michael Brown. Yes, Michael Brown. Yeah, I think he's done in Charlotte, actually. Messianic. Okay. Yeah. He, so yeah. I, I think I think, I think that's he's correct. A messianic well, anyway, um, we we had one debate, and I can tell you there are numerous people who are now full preterists as a direct result of that. But I, I introduced, which is, I mean, it, it's a well-known hermeneutic, hermeneutic from ancient Israel. I mean, it's this is not a preterist hermeneutic, okay? But the Hebrews called it the Raj Pesher, and that's probably not pronounced correctly. I have a good friend in Israel that's a, one of the top Hebrew scholars in the world, and every once in a while I'll contact him and say, tell me how to pronounce it's this. It's not Nehemiah Gordon, is it? No. Do you know Nehemiah Gordon? No, I don't. Oh, okay, sorry. Reuben Browder is, oh, okay. is his name. And uh, when I'll say, how do I pronounce this? And, you know, and he go, you're an American. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> you're from Oklahoma. You yeah. really can't. Yeah. <laughs> he told me that very thing one time. You're in Oklahoma. You can't say this. <laughs> you can't talk, you, boy. You can't get there from he's, here. He's a blast. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, we come from polar opposites theologically, ideologically. But... We get along famously, and we'll jab each other. We really will. And one day he was asking me on the phone, video call. He goes, okay, Don, tell me what is there about what you're teaching that is so controversial? I said, why haven't you read anything I've written? I said, I told you to go to my website. I don't have time for that. I said, okay, here's the, here's the, the deal. I said, 99.9% .9 of all American Christians believe that one of these days, Jesus is going to come back out of heaven as a five foot five Jewish man on a literal cumulus cloud, flaming fire, blah, blah, blah. He said, no. He said, you've got it wrong. It's five foot 10 wearing a yarmulke. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> and that's the kind of sense of humor that he's got, you know, that we can go back and forth uh, on. And, and he's very, very helpful. Uh, 
uh, I have I've challenged him several times and given him things to think about, and he's come back to me and just openly admitted, never thought about that. That's the, uh, and I'll share very quickly one of the things that I shared with him. I began to say all the way back in 2014 that the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter 9 are based upon the feast days. I had never read it. I'd never heard it. And when I see something in the scriptures that I have not read from any scholar, I get a little concerned. Okay. Because, and I say this because I'm not trying to be self-depreciating or self-disparaging whatsoever. It's, it's the way I literally feel. I am nothing but a Bible student. That's, that's all the world I am. And so when I, when I can't find in scholarship what I'm seeing, I'm going, well, okay. Uh, what are my reasons for seeing this? What, what, what is my evidence? Okay. So I take a good long time documenting whatever it is this, quote, new argument might be. And like I said, I had never read anywhere. I've got Logos Bible study. I've got shelves full of commentaries on Daniel. And I've even gone to uh, libraries, you know, uh, that have vast numbers of commentaries on Daniel. Never, ever read a single commentary to ever suggest that Daniel 9 is based upon the feast days. But to me now, it's just, it's just glaringly obvious. I gave a presentation on it at Preterist Pilgrim Weekend in 2014. That's the conference that you hold out in Oklahoma. Yes, uh, in Ardmore. And so... He and I, were uh, we email back and forth quite commonly. So I wrote him an email, and I said, I want, I want your feedback. I said, here's what I'm seeing. Now, here's one thing you need to know about the Jews. They don't consider Daniel to be a prophet. And the reason for it is, is because it's so messianic. Ah, uh, really? Yeah. yeah. They don't like Daniel hmm. at all. Doesn't mean oh. they're not familiar with it. They just don't like it. I wonder it. if that's why they're attacking it. They've been they've been saying that it was written, you know, in the second century. Uh, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, yes. Yeah, which is not accurate. No, 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 no. Yeah, but that's no, why they're attacking that, it. Right that there. argument was actually, first of all, uh, set forward by an anti-Christian Jew called Porphyry. Okay. Or anti-Christian. He might have been a Greek. But anyway, point of fact is that was the very first time that argument was ever presented in history, so far as we know. So anyway, um, Reuven and I were, you know, talking in the email, and I said, okay, here's, here's what I'm seeing. And I just mapped it out real, real quickly in outline form, uh, the references that I, the festal references that I see. And he writes back and he said, I've never heard of that before in my life. Are you crazy? And I said, well, it may be. I said, show me. And he said, no, seriously, that's fascinating. He said, I've never read that anywhere in any writings. Now, mind you, he has translated the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's a scholar. And so he's, he, he's got two sons who are chief rabbis in different synagogues in Israel. And he's, he's told me the names of other chief rabbis in different you know, synagogues throughout Israel that he knows personally. So he says, I got to throw this by some rabbis, <laughs> including my sons. It was a month later. 
That was like the most Oklahoma thing I've ever heard. Throw it by some rabbi. What did I say? Thing. No, you just, just said throw by. I gotta throw that thing by some rabbi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing with you. Okay, okay. That would have been a good way to hear him say it. In his, uh, <laughs> <laughs> his, um, oh, God, what's the word? Gosh. Accent? Yes, thanks. There, yes, yeah. 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 So anyway, after about a month, I get this email, and he said, on your point about Daniel Nine being based upon the feast days, he said, I have asked my two sons, and he said, I've asked, you know, named off several other rabbis. And he said, nobody has ever heard this before or never read it before. However, every one of them said, this is worth investigating because this is based directly on the text. And I was going, cool deal. <laughs> that's, that's just pretty cool. So anyway, that that's that's sort of kind of my journey. Uh, that's a fascinating testimony. To where I am today. Yeah. I, um, I was fired. I, I ministered at the congregation for 16 years. I resigned to, to do what I'm doing now. And, uh, and I, can you tell, can you tell our audience where we can find your work? You mentioned YouTube. Like what's the name of the channel? It's Don K Preston. Don K Preston. And, and then you have a website? Have three, three, web, three, three websites mm-hmm. actually. DonKPreston.com, BibleProphecy.com, or Eschatology.org. Yeah, those are all three of my websites. And, uh, they keep me busy How writing. How in the world did you get eschatology.org? That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, a you good friend it. of mine yeah. uh, who was into the computers before I ever imagined it, before I ever touched a computer in my life, uh, he, he came to me on one occasion, and he goes, hey, Don, you on a website? And I go, uh, 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 I do? <laughs> <laughs> what? Exactly what does that mean? <laughs> right. And he goes, well, look, Don, I've told you before, you know, computers is the way it's going. You need a website for yourself. Yeah. And I go, well, whatever. So he developed the whole thing, mm-hmm. and he would say, write me some articles. And he would put the articles on the website for wow, me. Wow, that's and awesome. And he's since moved off to who knows where. I, don't, I hadn't heard from him in years. Yeah. But anyway, that's how I got eschatology.org. He didn't put it in his own name. He put it strictly in my name, which is, I that think. Was very kind. Oh, it so was. It was and very then, providential. And, yeah, he was right, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> he's exactly right. Bibleprophecy.com. I, I have had, goodness gracious, I have had any number of dispensational churches and ministries contact me wanting to buy that. Oh, I'm sure. Only the, imagine. I'm yeah. surprised, yeah. Yeah, they want that name. Tim LaHaye wants it bad. I'm sure he does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I kind of own DonKPreston.com, so I'm, I'm yeah, good at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, although there is a famous Don Preston that's like a musician or something, right? Uh, yeah, there, there is, is a famous a, murderer as well. Uh, oh, well, a famous yeah. murderer. Yeah. Well, covered all areas. <laughs> yeah. How about that? <laughs> but uh, to, which, to which one do we have in a here? A musician, today? a murderer, and a preacher <laughs> walk into a bar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds like a great joke. <laughs> yeah, uh, a good friend of mine, actually, he kept telling me, he said, Don, you've got to promote yourself. Well, I've never been a good promoter of self. Um, I, I always thought, well, if I produce material that's good, people will share it. And they'll do the promotion. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily true, unfortunately. <laughs> word, word of mouth is good, and, and I, I do get a lot of context that way. But I have never, ever, ever felt good uh, self-effacing, if you want to call it, I, whatever. I just never felt like promoting my name. Sure. 
so that that's it. So that's good. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Well, right? I, I was taught that from very early age, and I try seriously to be that way. But anyway, uh, my friend knew that I owned Don K. Preston because I bought a bunch of domain names just for self-protection, okay? Because I have had a lot of people down through the years literally stalk me on the internet and do lots of things to try to defame me, just blatant libel slander you know i'm not i'm not surprised i see it all the time i mean i see it constantly just so you know yeah it's, so it's awful. I, I knew that if i didn't protect myself by getting some domain names that were related to me that all of that defamatory stuff was going to be out there and so i purchased on kpreston.com and then my friend came along and said okay now that you got the domain name he said you really need to start promoting that over bibleprophecy.com I said, no, uh, I don't think so. But he slowly pushed me over the edge. And so now Don K. Preston is kind of the flagship. That that makes a lot of sense to me because there's a lot of people are going to look at BibleProphecy.com and they're they're gonna they're gonna without looking at it, they're gonna file it with the Babylon B. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just yeah. in Don K. Preston, that guy sounds official. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. absolutely true. Yeah, well, I guess you're right to a certain extent. I, I, like I said, I've just, I'm just not a good promoter. Um, you know, my ministry is is supported strictly and solely by financial contributions. You know, people who believe in what we're doing. It is agonizing to me to ask for contributions, but COVID has just been totally brutal to us. I'm, I'm telling you. It, you need to go to a Baptist conference for preachers. Yeah, I do. I, I, listen, I know. The, or Pentecostal. Right, because they've got classes. Yeah, they, I mean. Have you tried just accidentally accidentally getting trapped at a church? <laughs> you, a job? you know, well, see, in the churches of Christ, you don't give money to anything except the congregation. So it's in the Churches of Christ Fellowship to give to a ministry like mine is just, oh, no, oh, I'd never do that. That's unscriptural. That that's just that comes from my background, you see. And so um two or three times a year, I normally you know, normal attrition, people retire, they do this, they do that. Uh and boy, during COVID, like I said, you know. Parents, their their kids were losing their jobs. Mom and dad having to support their kids, and I mean, we we lost literally, literally thousands of dollars in monthly support uh, to where we, uh, we we got down. I, I'm not. I don't like to use the word desperate, but let's just say it was unhappy time for our ministry, and something had to happen. And uh, a few people have stepped forward to help us out, you know, and we. Uh, we still have concerns from from time to time about it, but that's been that's been part of the struggle of my whole ministry. And so, two or three times a year, on my morning musing, I say, "Well, folks, it's that time. I'm sorry." And I've had people never apologize for trying to raise money. Yeah, and I say, "Well, I feel bad. I don't. I don't like to do this." Yeah, you know. I mean, <clears throat> even Paul was. Kind of apologetic, but not apologetic. When you read into what he said about, yeah, you know, yeah. a minister is worth like, hey, I came in there and I worked. Okay, yeah, and I worked. Yeah. I didn't ask a thing from you, but you know, a minister. For, is worth forgive his me wage. for this. He actually apologized. That's to them. the point. So, yeah, like, he, 
Very yeah. similar there. I get yeah. it. That's in the Bible, dude. <laughs> like it's this is ancient guilt. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, uh, I I absolutely totally love what I'm doing. I tell people all the time. Uh, sometimes I think that nobody ought to be able to have as much fun as I do. Yeah. Now I'm working harder than I ever have. Literally. Yeah. I mean, uh, making five YouTube videos a week doing a radio program, and on top of my writing wow. and research. Uh, I normally get up, uh, I did this morning, uh, I hit the floor at 3.13 this mm. morning. Yeah. And uh, Yeah, I've heard that the YouTube or the social media thing, the people that do professionally are just like, it is an awful grind. It yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of work. I study probably four or five hours for this because I research, I'm probably not anywhere near as well as you do, but I have to look things up and look people up and, and do different things because I know Rick's going to say something that I don't understand or don't agree with, and I better know what I'm talking about or he's going to let me know it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, That's why well. Billy's quiet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Billy's one of them smart kind that he doesn't talk unless he knows he's got something. Mm -hmm. So all I got to say is that he's a hunk. Like Need that. I say more? That's it. Big hunk. He just has that to sit there and look pretty. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Preston, thank you so much for being yeah, on our you. show. Yes, thank well, you thank you for asking me. You're an amazing yes. guest. I've enjoyed listening to your testimony. You know, uh, Mike Sullivan and Robert Kirkshank told yeah. me, they said, you got to get a hold of this guy, Don. Said he was asking about you, yeah. wondering if you'd be willing to come out. And I said, well, tell me about it. I said, I don't know anything about it. So they did. And I was like, well, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. I said, <laughs> did you enjoy yourself? Oh, yeah. absolutely. All right. So you would recommend us? Yes. Okay, good. Because we, we had that question, remember? We said at the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me know yeah. at the yeah, end. Yeah, that's, that's after, right. I, after I, after I, I highly yeah. recommend this show. <laughs> yeah, but just remember, he's going to be listening and looking us up before he puts us on his show. Yeah, yes. exactly right. He, he will read your uh, manuscript, Well, sir. just so you know, you said that a little prematurely because I haven't told a joke yet. <laughs> but here he comes. Oh, here we yeah. go. And I got myself prepared with some Oklahoma jokes. Oh boy. So he is going to punch me right Careful in the Careful now. Mouth. You got two Oklahoma boys. <laughs> My daddy's from Oklahoma. All right. So let me ask you this question okay. Did you know that the toothbrush was invented in Oklahoma? Yes, because there isn't a teeth brush. Nice. That's good. That's well, good. you know, I yeah. go to Tennessee often. How can, you tell a, how can you tell if someone in Oklahoma is married? Yes, their cousin. No, that's yeah, that was West that's West a Virginia, joke buddy. normally told about Arkansas, yeah. Yeah. which is never <laughs> appreciated by the way. I ever heard so one. Here's how you can <laughs> that tell that joke could work here too. Here's so. like, yes. It's true. Here's how you can tell the tobacco spit stains are on both sides of his pickup truck. Yes, sir. That's pretty good. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, this one. Uh, this one says, uh, what do you call a good-looking girl on the University of Oklahoma campus? A visitor. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, now, this one uh, it says, this is my last one, I promise. And then I have it. <laughs> it says, uh, why did Oklahoma raise the minimum drinking age to 25? Wow. They wanted to keep alcohol out of high school. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's not nice. Uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, well, and just to be very kind, one of the smartest, most amazing theologians of our time came right out of Oklahoma. That's where you were born, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Arkansas. Where'd you live? Arkansas. His wife was was in Oklahoma. I was born in Prairie Grove, Arkansas, at the Elizabeth Hospital. And I tell people, it no longer functions, no longer a hospital. They went went out of business, and I said, well, here's, here's what the deal is. When I was born, they said, there could never be a more perfect baby. We're just closing our doors. Or they said, if that's what's going to be produced here, we're closing our doors. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Did and they you, kicked him into Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kicked me. Yeah. As a matter of fact, like when you, you have a, qu- a question for him, Billy? Oh, it, do we have time for my yeah, uh, every, absolutely. every question? I have a, yeah, I want you to ask that question. But I did, while you were talking about your wife, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, and I said, you know, she is amazing. I got to meet her. She's a very, very nice lady. But you, you would say that your wife, is an angel, you know, like not, not in the biblical sense, but this, it reminded me of a joke and I wanted to say it earlier, but it wasn't right. It wasn't the right time. But this, these two guys are walking on the street and one guy looks over and he says, you know, my wife is an angel. And the other guy was like, man, you're so lucky. Mine's still alive. <laughs> that's the last joke of the day. The uh, that sounds joke. like Walter on the Jeff Dunham <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Billy, go ahead with yeah. your question. So, I ask every every guest, no matter what they believe or or non-believer or whatever that comes on the show. So, when Doctor Preston, when his end time comes, what do you believe? Like, what what do you see? What when do you, you die? What, when you die, what do you? Do you soul sleep? Do you, you know, see Jesus? The angels come and get you? Is there a resting time? What what do you believe? I believe that when the child of God dies, they go directly to be with Christ. Directly. Hallelujah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, see, and see, that's one of the radical changes in my theology because being raised in the church of Christ, the standard view forever was that when the faithful Christian dies, they have to go to Abraham's bosom, which is a pretty nice place, mind you. It's a place of rest and and peace and what have you. But you got to get your body out of the grave and be judged in order to go to heaven, then go to heaven. And that's one of the very, that was one of the things that just blew my socks off when I was studying Hebrews chapter nine, uh, many, 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 many years ago. Hebrews nine says, that as long as the law of Moses and the temple and the cultus uh, stood valid and binding, there was no forgiveness of sin, which meant no one could enter the most holy place, heaven itself. One of the fundamental doctrines of the Church of Christ is the law of Moses was removed at the cross. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If the law of Moses was removed at the cross and the law of Moses was the barrier between man and heaven since the law of Moses could not give forgiveness, then why is it that the law of Moses is gone, but I still don't have forgiveness of sin and I still don't get to go to heaven? That didn't work. It doesn't work out. (laughs) It doesn't work out even a little bit. No. And uh, I have used that in formal public debate over and over and over with all millennialists of the Church of Christ uh, persuasion. Haven't had one of them answer it yet. And they can't. Not not given that dichotomy that exists. I mean, they just cannot answer that. And so it was, and I'll never forget in one public confrontation I had uh, at the congregation that fired me. Okay, they surreptitiously brought in a guy who claimed to be the final answer for preterism. They thought I was going to be gone that Sunday, so they brought him in. When I walked in Sunday morning before services, one of the elders literally ran up to me and said, what are you doing here? I said, I work here. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I said, I said, in case you've forgotten, I'm the preacher here. I said, but I'm not going to preach. I said, I just decided not to go out of town. You're not supposed to be here. And then I knew something was going on. So before, or at the time of the announcements, one of the elders gets up and he said, well, uh, tonight we got a very special treat. Brother Buster Dobbs from Houston is going to be here to talk to us about the 8070 doctrine. Well, I had known about Buster Dobbs all down through the years. He's a, I think he passed away recently, but hateful, caustic, mean-spirited guy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that afternoon, I went to the elders meeting. Wasn't supposed to, but I went in. And they were like, what are you doing here? I said, well, I want to talk to you, brethren. I said, you know, you uh, you thought I was going to be gone today. And so you plotted and schemed among yourselves to bring in Buster Dobbs and another guy named Don Kane in order to assure this congregation that I'm a false teacher and a heretic. Oh, that was never our intent. I said, look, brethren, yes, it was. And you can't tell me otherwise. But I said, rest assured that the minute Buster Dobbs steps out of the pulpit, I'm walking into the pulpit, and I'm going to answer everything he said. Well, that's what we had in mind all along. I said, And I just told him, I, I used the words. I said, brother, you're lying. You thought I was going to be gone. How could I answer him if I was gone? Yeah. Well, they and were caught. It caught. started off wrong <laughs> at the very beginning. Yeah, that's so he gets up and gives his little spiel, and I forgot now exactly what what he had said, but it opened the door for an exegesis of Hebrews nine. And I just turned to him; he was sitting in the front pew, and I said, "Brother Dobbs, if the law of Moses has been done away, tell me why I don't get to go to heaven today? Because." I know you believe that the child of God still does not have today, even though all of Moses is gone, the child of God still does not possess genuine, objective forgiveness of sin. We got to wait till we go to heaven to get that. We got to wait until we're resurrected, technically, Mm -hmm. in order to get that. I said, here's the text. You say no one goes to heaven today. Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews said, the only reason a person doesn't get to go to heaven is because the old law was in effect and there was no forgiveness. I said, Brother Dobbs, you got a problem Which here. one is it? Yeah. Afterwards, there was two or three couples came up to me and they said, you know, what you're saying never hit us until what you just preached on, on Hebrews chapter nine. They said, if that doesn't prove it, we don't know what does. Yes. So... And that's you go, into our when you, you stand right before Christ. Isn't that awesome? I just, uh, I've, I've got to tell you a dream. I, I'm, I'm not a believer in dreams as signs, okay? Yeah. As we all know, dreams can be wonderfully powerful. They can, they can make us angry. They can make us happy, whatever. About five years ago, I was, I was dreaming, And in the dream, I went to the empty tomb on the day he was resurrected. I was yelling everywhere. He's alive, people. He is alive. I'm telling you, he's alive. I woke up crying. Wow. Yeah, I woke up crying. 
And I told Jan about it, my wife, uh, about it afterwards, and she started crying too because it was so so powerful. And like I said, I, I don't believe in dreams as signs or omens or anything like that. But that was such an incredibly emotional, powerful dream. I've never had another dream that powerful in all of my life. And I, I still think about it constantly. I think that one of the things that I've, have always thought about dreams and I don't get into the the breaking them down or whatever but we do know that our brains decompress stress through the use of dreams and our and to me with everything that you put into the research and the anxiety of and you've even said you've had depression in your life oh, yeah. right yeah. the anxieties and things that come at you and you you carry a lot of weight on your shoulders if you think how many people come to Don K Preston for answers in regard to this you carry that weight and you carry it very well actually but i think that that feels almost providential that you received a dream that would let you have that kind of experience and you still feel it i think that's good i love that whether it's your mind or it was god either way you needed it well it it was certainly quote, encouraging. Yes. You know, uh, I, I have never for a moment doubted the resurrection of Christ. I've done enough study historically, comparatively. Uh, I, I've always loved Christian evidences mm -hmm. and comparative studies with other religions. That's always been uh, a major part of, of my research down through the years. And um, I, I just... As a result of that study and interacting with some with some atheists and unbelievers and what have you, and being challenged to look at the evidence to see if there really was good reason to doubt the resurrection, uh, I've never for a moment doubted the resurrection of Jesus. Not not for even one moment. So then that dream comes along, and it's just like, holy cow! Yes, <laughs> this, is, this is totally awesome. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think that's a great place to end this. Dr. Preston, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Billy, Ralph, Andy, Cherry. Sarita had to leave a little bit early. So bye, Sarita. You can hear about it later. And I do want to say this, guys. Please go to donkpreston.com. Um, like you talked about being a minister after COVID, the things that affected his ministry. You know we don't sit in here and harp about money, but we have a lot of listeners. Guys, go help him out. I mean, he, he has so much to give to you. You can go to YouTube and, and you, how many? <laughs> go to YouTube and learn how to study the Bible. Yes. If, <laughs> if you want nothing to, else. There's 514 episodes of the Olivet Discourse. If you would like to read those. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, there's 687. <laughs> <laughs> but who's counting? But who's counting? <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, go there. And then, um, and also, I want to say this too. Uh, go to mindreadermovie.com and check this movie out. Uh, I'm believing it's a huge success at this point, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking before it even releases. <laughs> That's very good. Anyway, well, guys, we will talk to you next time on the Burrows of Berea. Out. Hey, guys, this is Rick from the Burrows of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea. You'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. Did you take your wife back to the hotel? Yes, we did. Okay. I offered her the keys to the van, but she wouldn't take them. No.
She she is not very adventuresome when it comes to th- stuff like that. What kind of cancer did she survive? Uh, you mentioned it, and then we kind of left. Thyroid cancer twice, and then breast cancer. And uh, uh, the breast cancer was the last. Thankfully, they caught it when it was um, not quite thumbnail size. And uh, we took her to the Cancer Treatment Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, if you're familiar with that. I'm assuming you would be. And I have to tell you, I've never been more impressed by a medical facility or almost any business. You You had to have a referral. And even, and even to get accepted. And after you were accepted through the referral, then you had to go up and spend two days of consultations for them to determine if they'd take your case. Wow. Yeah. Where, where, was, where was this at? Sorry. Tulsa. Tulsa. Uh, Tulsa. Yeah. At the Cancer Center. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, Is that uh, the Cancer Treatment Center of America, though? Yes. That brand? Yes, yeah. that's right. it. They've since shut the Tulsa uh, branch down. Um, but anyway, we, we go up there and see in, t- in Ardmore, Oklahoma, when you go to the office, uh, doctor's office, pretty typical, you're going to sit there and wait for 30, 45 minutes, an hour or whatever. And so we're going, we're going to spend two days up there in consultations. Oh man. We go up there, go to the front desk. The gal at the front desk goes, Oh yes, Miss Preston said, here's your packet. Um, said in the morning, nine o'clock, show it, uh, show up in the back, you know, told us where it was, and said, you'll be seeing seven doctors tomorrow. And we're going, seriously? (laughs) How is that even possible logistically? And so we showed up at the front desk. Very next morning, she hands the packet to the gal, uh, admittance gal. And she goes, okay, Miss Preston, got you all set up. Have a seat. Somebody will be out to get you in about 10 minutes. And we're going, <laughs> sure. Okay, in about seven minutes, here comes this gal. Janice Preston. Okay, so we go back. Doctor comes in, does a consultation. Okay, go have a seat. Said so somebody will be out to get you in about 10 minutes. Happened all day long. Oh, wow. That's it good. was click, 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 click. We were never, we never waited over 10 minutes for a single, to see a single doctor. Wow. And it, it was just phenomenal the, of the caring, nurturing atmosphere mm-hmm. that they had there. The only person who said one word about money to us was the financial consultant. And this was cool. Rick, we're standing there waiting on him, and he comes out, young man, dressed in a suit and tie, and he introduced himself to Jan first, and he goes, Preston, Preston, I know that name. And he goes, what's your name to me? And I said, Don Preston. He goes, you're Don Preston? I said, yeah. <laughs> the one and only. You, you know, you get a little gun shy after a while. <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, I watch you on Morning Musings every single day. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And so we go, back to, we go back to his office and we spend 30 minutes talking, he and I, talking about Morning Musings. And finally he goes, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be talking to you about your finances. <laughs> he said, I suppose I ought to do my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then he goes, well, I just want you to know we have already got you cleared with Medicare. And uh, they're going to take care of 80%, no cap. 
We've already cleared you with your supplemental. They're going to take care of the rest. You're 100% oh, covered. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. That was beyond. Yeah. I like My, that. Jan just busted out boohoo crying. I mean, just boo who we, we were convinced it was going to bankrupt us. Wow. It, we really were. Yeah. And there it was. The Lord took care of it. Yes. That's, that's awesome. Just, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Don, that happened to me, actually, with my last son. I spent uh, 81 days in the hospital. Oh. It was in ICU. He was in NICU. So we got $70,000 bill from the doctors, and then we got a $250,000 bill from Mission in Asheville. And um, I was like, which child do I sell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. For the other child. And so I started making phone calls and I called the doctor's office and I'm like, get a guess on a payment plan. And when we die, we'll pass on the payments to the kid yeah. that caused the problems. <laughs> and he, they were like, the doctors have decided because they can write many medical papers on you that they're going to they're gonna take care of the bill. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> write all the articles you want. What do you, do you need yeah. DNA samples? <laughs> and then I called Mission and um, I was like, you know, same thing. I get on payment plan. And they said, oh, the bill's been taken care of. How awesome. And still oh, to this day, yeah. how, don't know wow. how over a quarter of a million dollars yeah. in medical bills was just Go taken on. care of. Somehow they somehow they build that back to the U.S. government, I I'm sure. I'm, I'm well, paying I for it right now. See, I'm not sure how exactly. The cancer treatment centers. They're all donation. Like They, they were strictly nonprofit at the time. Now, about two years after she ended her treatment, then they went for profit. And I told you. Told my wife, I said, they're going to go. They're going to go out. They, oh, they, the consolidation in this industry is absolutely leveling us as a nation. It like, is. It's, it's crazy. Terrible. Yeah. And, terrible. and they will close down any like mediocre performing, like small hospital system. If you live out kind of not in an urban area, oh, yeah. your services are in danger right now. Not because they're losing money, but even if they're breaking even yeah. or, or making inadequate money, they will just destroy that if they don't see it as a viable profit center. My wife worked care. for 20 years for the Mercy Medical uh, System there at Ardmore. And that was happening to all the small bedroom communities yep. around. And it was just, you know, people were going, what are we supposed to do? Well, you come to Ardmore. Yeah, drive, I, I drive a 50, couple hours. It's yeah, no big I, deal. I drive 50 miles away. I mean, I live 50 miles away or whatever it happened to be. And it's like, well, you know, that's where the hospital is. So that's what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. But don't die in the 50 miles it takes you to get there. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, if you're going to have a real emergency, I suggest doing it nearer to town. Exactly. Yep. If you have a helicopter, you need to move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're rolling? Oh, yeah. We're All right. We're well, let's get this thing started. I'm not going to get into you know why we chose the name that we chose, but if you can think of Balaam and the ass that tried to save him. <laughs> And if you can think of the Bereans, you obviously know what that is. Yeah. And so we're just yep. a bunch of asses that are trying to save people. Okay. <laughs> we won't go much further than that. <laughs> but, but truthfully, um, what we've come to at the end of all of these is that we're trying to love one another. And that's awesome. really what we're after. Awesome. Yeah. Hi, Even Andy. Even me. <laughs> yeah, I think you do love us, yeah. Andy. He actually told us he loved us the other day. Did you see that? Yes. I took a screenshot of it. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. It was probably like one of those moments just like, dang, now I'm going to have to put it. And I love them too. Pardon? You love everybody when you're like that, right, Billy? Are we wearing him down? No. 
Okay, that sounds good. Okay. See, we need we need bar hike things with back. Because it always feels weird to me when one person is like shorter than the other. <laughs> well, I'm just glad it's not video. So <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. who's that kid? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>